1: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear about a program that connects young people interested in restaurant careers with restaurants that need staffing help.
0: Not only from a a labor shortage perspective, but I think it's also just taught us how to be a little bit of a better restaurant.
1: And as fentanyl overdose deaths remain high, we'll look at why test strips to check for its presence aren't more widely available. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. The pandemic's impact on many industries continues, even as cases overall appear to be on a downward trajectory. Later in the show, we'll hear more about what that has looked like for the restaurant business and about a program that connects young people interested in a career in food service with industry mentors. But first, we're going to talk about water, specifically water from the South Platte River, which runs through eastern Colorado and into Nebraska. It provides water for farms, cities, and hydropower along the way. But now Nebraska is staking a claim to more water from the river. Governor Pete Ricketts proposed a system of canals and reservoirs with a price tag of half a billion dollars. But not a whole lot is known about the project, and experts in Colorado are hungry for more details. KUNC's Alex Hager has been following this story and joins us now to talk about it. Hey, Alex.
3: Hey there. Thanks for having me.
1: It sounds like details are a little bit sparse here, so uh, tell us what we do know.
3: Well, this all hinges on a 99-year-old agreement between the two states. There's an article in this compact from the 1920s. It says Nebraska is entitled to a certain amount of flow during the irrigation season and then a different total during the non-irrigation season. And it says they are allowed to go into Colorado to seize land and build canals and reservoirs to do that. So Nebraska's governor comes out and says he's going to use that piece of the agreement to make sure Nebraska has all the water it needs. He says he's worried about his state's ability to keep getting water to its people and farms and its two biggest cities. And this is a way to protect all of them. It it was part of this big public presentation. It was actually during his State of the State address. The framing was basically this. Colorado is growing a ton. You know, that's, that's a fact. And they're going to need more water for all of that growth. But Nebraska's governor said it could be up to 90% of the water that should be going to his state. So that number is a little up for debate. But the idea that Colorado is going to start taking water that would otherwise go to Nebraska is really at the heart of this plan.
1: Well, you mentioned this 99-year-old agreement, and I get that between the states, but it feels like this really came out of nowhere. What do Colorado's water people know about the project?
3: Well, I was shocked to learn that they really do not know a lot. I I talked to Colorado's state engineer, and he said between his office and the state attorney general's office, they know as much as we do. Historically, this is the kind of thing that gets hashed out between two state engineers, It's kind of unsexy. It doesn't create a ton of fanfare. And the two states are more or less working together from the outset. This is not a typical case, though. Colorado says they really just want more details. They're waiting to hear from their counterparts across the border. And it's not entirely clear what's going to happen without those details. There's a decent chance this plays out in court, but others are saying the states could put their heads together. They could still collaborate on a plan to make sure that everyone stays happy.
1: Okay. Well, is this project even possible? It sounds pretty big and expensive and, of course, legally complicated, could Nebraska actually pull it off?
3: That is the big question here. You know, how serious is Nebraska about this? The fact that it came as a public announcement without a whole lot of details led some people to believe that it was just a political shot across the bow, like a way to remind Colorado that Nebraska is watching its water use closely and, you know, you better stay on your toes. I followed up with the Nebraska governor's office and they said, oh yeah, we actually plan to do this, we're just not at the detail stage yet. But there are some people who know a lot about the river and a lot about water in the region, and they told me it just doesn't seem that possible. I talked to Jim Yan, he used to be the South Platte director for Colorado's top water board. He still manages reservoirs in the northeast corner of the state. He says he's got to see more details, but it's just not going to be easy for Nebraska to put this together. And he said it kind of sounded like Governor Ricketts just didn't know a lot of specifics about the river. First of all, he said Colorado simply just does not have the infrastructure, does not have the capacity to take 90 percent of the water heading across the border. And he said, we're talking about an agreement from before the Great Depression. The amount of water that Nebraska wants to redirect, that might not even be there anymore.
1: Exactly. A lot of things still need to be answered here. Um, So what happens next?
3: basically everyone says we've just got to see more details and there is not a whole lot of news on the detail front. The plan actually did come up again in the Nebraska legislature the other day, but basically they're still just trying to make sure they have the budget space to fund this plan. This kind of plan is not entirely unprecedented. It's actually pretty common in the West for one state to cross over a border and put in some water infrastructure. Usually does not cause much controversy. But in this case, everyone is just waiting to see if Nebraska is serious about this And they're going to know that by seeing the particulars. Everything from the legality of this project to the impact it'll have on wildlife, even the chance that it is physically possible for Nebraska to build the canal system it wants to, we are not going to know that. And the state of Colorado is not going to know that until Nebraska sends them some more details.
1: That is KUNC's Alex Hager with the latest on Nebraska's $500 million proposal to redirect water from the South Platte River in Colorado. Alex, thanks for coming on today.
3: Happy to do it. Fentanyl
1: is a synthetic opioid that's 80 to 100 times stronger than morphine. Drugs laced with fentanyl are driving overdose deaths across the region and in Colorado. There are ways to test for it, but in some cases, that's illegal too. Madeline Beck has more for Colorado Edition.
4: Forensic scientist Carrie Hogan is in an Idaho crime lab looking at a device that can analyze fentanyl.
1: My most generic way to explain it is the reverse of baking. So if you put a chocolate chip cookie into our mass spectrometer, every time you put a chocolate chip cookie into there, it would break apart into flour, sugar, butter, eggs, and chocolate chips.
4: Analyzing fentanyl can take more time than other drugs. So Idaho's crime lab chemists have been working hard to process an increasing amount of fentanyl, often coming in the form of little blue counterfeit pills.
1: They are designed to look like oxycodone tablets. So they're round, light blue to green in color, and they have an imprint of an M on one side and a 30 on the other.
4: There are also fairly cheap ways for people to check for potentially deadly fentanyl in their own drugs. They're called fentanyl test strips, but they're illegal in Idaho and many other states. The strips act like a pregnancy test. One line if there's fentanyl in a drug's residue, two if there isn't. They're not foolproof, but early research shows that young people who have them use more caution. That can save lives. Still, Idaho health officials aren't pressuring lawmakers to make test strips legal this year.
0: Our stance right now as a department is to really focus on providing some education to our partners about what that legislative change
4: would mean. Caroline Messerschmidt is with Idaho's Drug Overdose Prevention Program. She points to states like Pennsylvania, where a bill to legalize test strips failed last year.
0: They just didn't put the effort behind it that they needed to because there was this other thing called
4: COVID happening at the same time. As of last May, the strips were illegal in more than half of U.S. states. That's according to data from the Legislative Analysis and Public Policy Association. So why are they illegal? Well, Association Attorney John Woodruff found that in the 70s, many states copy-pasted the DEA's definition of illegal drug paraphernalia into their own laws, and that definition includes individual tests for illicit drugs. So, he says, the drug tests have been technically illegal for decades.
2: The question is, how do you, you know, get the inertia of having a law that's been in place for so long changed enough to sort of clearly make it allowable.
4: Woodruff says his public policy association plans to draft new model legislation for states to change their drug paraphernalia laws and allow test strips. But some states already changed their laws, like Nevada. And others, like New Mexico, don't want to wait any longer.
0: Around 250 people would have likely been Um, saved had we initially, when we first introduced this bill, if we had gotten it to pass.
4: Arian Showers is with the New Mexico Department of Health. The agency drafted another bill this year, and it goes beyond fentanyl test strips, legalizing tests for anything new that could come along. Fentanyl probably isn't going anywhere soon, um,
0: but we're already seeing analogs to fentanyl that are popping up in the drug supply that are actually not um, being detected by fentanyl test strips.
4: Schauer says if they legalize tests now, they can use tools from the federal government. Last April, officials made it legal for states to use federal grant funds to buy fentanyl test strips.
0: If we can get this bill passed, it's really going to enable us to intervene quickly, um, immediately, and to really start trying to solve this problem.
4: Just legalizing the test strips doesn't mean states will use them, though. The tests aren't listed as drug paraphernalia in Wyoming. But state health officials don't plan on buying test strips yet, citing limited fentanyl overdose data. All this comes as the U.S. recognizes a grim milestone. In the 12 months leading up to April of last year, more than 100,000 people died from drug overdoses. A record. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Madeline Beck.
1: Colorado has changed its own drug paraphernalia laws, so fentanyl test strips are legal here. Some health officials are even promoting them, although they could be still very hard to find in parts of the state. Coming up after a short break, we'll check in on the state of the restaurant industry at this point in the pandemic and hear about an apprenticeship program that's connecting young people interested in a food industry career with restaurants that need help. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. A range of industries continue to face staffing issues due to COVID-19, from retention to hiring, fields like early childhood education, trash management, and restaurants, which prior to the pandemic accounted for nearly 10 percent of the state's labor force. Since the pandemic began, restaurants and the workers who keep them running have been hit hard. According to a report out last year from the Colorado Restaurant Association, nearly 77,000 restaurant workers had lost their jobs and were still out of work, and as much as 40 percent of the state's restaurants are in danger of closing. An apprenticeship program in four states, including Colorado, is helping to connect young people interested in the restaurant industry with restaurants, providing an alternative career pathway for students and, in theory, some solutions to the challenges restaurants are facing. To learn more about the Restaurant Youth Registered Apprenticeship Program, we're joined by Daniela Fernandez, a recent high school graduate and apprentice through RIRA at Chook Charcoal Chicken, a local chicken restaurant with three locations around the Denver metro area. We're also joined by Elizabeth Nicholson, Chook's Chief Operating Officer. Daniela and Elizabeth, welcome to both of you.
0: Thank you for having us.
1: Elizabeth, I'd like to start with you. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about chook, first of all, and how you have sort of weathered the pandemic up to this point?
0: Of course. Yeah. So chook is Aussie slang for chicken. We're an Australian style rotisserie chicken shop, really a place um, that was born out of our founders' want for a restaurant that they could take their family to, feel good about um, feeding their kids, and have it be really fast, easy, approachable, um, and most importantly, affordable clean food in a really fun environment. So we were created to be a takeaway shop. Um, When we first opened our doors in in 2018, we were doing about 40% takeaway. And that was the crux of of what we wanted to be. Um, And then of course, when the pandemic hit in in 2020, we had just opened up our second shop and had to pivot pretty quickly. Um, But luckily, we were set up in that we had been doing takeaway and the food was created to carry home. Um, And since then, have continue to run that takeaway service. We recently reopened our dining rooms, um, opened up a third shop in the middle of the pandemic, um, but have been kind of being as flexible as we can based on uh, what the world permits outside of our shop.
1: And at least having that, you know, firm foundation of takeaway probably helped you be prepared for the unexpected, you know, more so than others. We have heard from a lot of restaurant owners who are experiencing staffing challenges, both with retention and with new hires. Is that something Chook has been dealing with as well?
0: It has, yeah. When the pandemic originally hit, we did have to uh, let go a portion of our staff and and run a little bit more of a skeletal crew. Um, We were able to make it through and um, rehire some folks that had been on our team prior to that shutdown. Um, But as we opened up a third store, um, I think we started to run into those staffing issues and then again reopening our dining rooms over the summer last summer uh, we saw an increase in business lots of people wanting to dine out and wanting to enjoy food in our shops but us not necessarily having the staff to uh to accommodate that and that's been a difficult piece for us and so uh, the Ryra apprenticeship was a great opportunity for us to kind of look at another um, labor pool that we hadn't been able to uh, reach previously um, to continue to find just great people. um, And, you know, we can train them to be a great peep at our store.
1: Yeah. Well, let's turn to talk more about the apprenticeship. Um, As we mentioned earlier, it's part of a program in four states that connects restaurant mentors with budding food industry apprentices. Um, Elizabeth, how did you hear about the program and why were you interested in getting involved?
0: Originally, I heard about the program through just a newsletter that the CRA of the Colorado Restaurant Association had sent out. Um, We were really uh, having a hard time hiring at that time and thought that it would be a good opportunity for us to get some applicants that maybe we wouldn't otherwise um, be connected with. And for us, we're a certified B Corporation, so we value people and planet as much as we value profit. Um, And this has been a really great way for us to say, we're a business for good. We're a, a real um, leader in the industry. We're a model for what other restaurants should try to be in composting and equitable pay. Um, and being able to teach someone that at a young age, uh, this is what the restaurant industry should be doing. Um, and you know, they can continue with us or they could go and take it to other restaurants or when they open up their own restaurant, open it with those kind of policies. Um, that was super exciting for us because having someone it be their first job out of high school, um, or you know, one of their very first jobs in their career. Being able to instill those, you know, really important values that we think will make the restaurant industry um, a, a better industry for everyone uh, was one of the reasons we really were interested in it. So Danielle is um, an employee of Truck, and through the apprenticeship, she's had the opportunity to take some um, additional instruction courses. A lot of what she completed prior to graduation, and then. Uh, they just announced recently that the any restaurants that have RIRA apprenticeships also are receiving a, a $3,000 grant for the restaurant to help with us creating resources to, to make the apprenticeship better.
1: Well let me turn to you Daniela. you've been in the program for now a little over half a year. Uh, how did you first hear about it?
2: Well in my home high school they had posted like a poster about like extra like careers I could like take and then they introduced me to the ccic high school and it was like basically uh somewhere i could go like during school like take a bus to a different school and i just found that really interesting because i i don't like being like stuck at school they like have like many different career choices and stuff and i just wanted to like do culinary because i've always like loved cooking and stuff and when they said that they had a culinary one i was like really excited about it I got some basic skills, but I still needed, like, that hands-on learning. So just coming here and, like, working um, really got me that hands-on learning that I needed.
1: So you already had a, a little bit of an interest in the restaurant industry, and it sounds like this is allowing you to kind of explore that. Can you tell us some of what you've been doing as an apprentice?
2: Yeah, I've been, like, learning a lot of, like, knife skills, um, how to safely, like, um, store stuff, like... And other things, I still need like a lot to learn, but this is like a really good step in that.
1: Sure. Well, yeah, (laughs) Rome wasn't built in a day, as they say. (laughs) Um, Now, have you picked up any soft skills along the way? It's been a really long time since I worked in the kitchen at Pizza Hut, Um, Mm -hmm. but I do feel like the kitchen can be a great place to learn things like trust and how to manage time. Um, How about for you? I
2: think... I think it really helped in my like adult life since out of high school I didn't really like know like how much, uh, like about jobs or anything like that. So it really helped me like mature and become more of an adult and do things for myself, have more independence, like know what to do on my own and stuff.
0: I would also just say that like since Daniela has started, one of the things that we've seen is just an immense amount of leadership. Um, she's got a really good attitude, but now people look to her to train them on how to properly plate stuff. And we have new people come in. Like, she is knowledgeable and is one that uh, folks go to to ask questions on how to get stuff done. So whether or not she necessarily recognizes it, we see a lot of leadership that's come from her.
1: (laughs) Nice. And I have heard that there is a pretty daunting um, rotisserie station. (laughs) Is that something you're also an expert in or specializing in?
2: Well, at first, I was, like, really... Like not sure of it because there's a lot of like heat involved and you need to keep like the fire going and stuff and i was really nervous about that at first but like having good like leaders to show you what to do i kind of lost that fear and now i'm just working on like perfecting it
1: if you're just joining us we're speaking with daniela fernandez an apprentice at chook charcoal chicken in denver and chook's chief operating officer elizabeth nicholson elizabeth i'm wondering what has it been like for you to see Daniela progress through her apprenticeship?
0: It's been really fun. I mean, the restaurant industry is a hard industry, and it's it's been a tough three years for us. But having someone who has such a good attitude, is super excited about it, um, really wants to learn, and you know, maybe one day open up their own restaurant. That's been so fun for us, and I think it's invigorating for the whole team. Seeing her just slowly become a leader in our store and one that um, everyone's excited to see come in for her shift.
1: And is this apprenticeship program something you think other restaurants could benefit from?
0: Yeah, I think not only from being able to fill some positions from a, a labor shortage perspective, but I think it's also just taught us how to be a little bit of a better restaurant. Having an apprentice who's really new to the industry has forced us to reconsider how we train, what our training resources look like, and make those better, which doesn't always help you know, it doesn't only help Daniela, it it helps the rest of our staff as well. Um, Make sure that, you know, we can really train anyone um, to come through. We're an attitude first technical skills later kind of restaurant. um, And we really think that having the right attitude is going to set anyone up for success in our kitchen. So having an apprentice who's pretty new to it all has been helpful for us to just be
2: better.
1: And Daniela, how about for you? How has this program um, shaped how you view the restaurant industry?
2: I think it's really helped because I've Or I sort of think, I think it depends on like the, like the people you work with, because sometimes you can have, I have had like a fast food job and it wasn't like really that good. I didn't have like good coworkers or anything, but when I came to this restaurant, it was like really like different. I could see the difference in how I like my mood improves and I'm actually like, I actually enjoy being at work, so I feel like that just like helps my mood, like overall and my life
1: overall. And how do you think the apprenticeship compares to some of the other career pathways out there? Like, for example, going to a two-year or a four-year college?
2: I feel like sometimes it's not that affordable. And here, like, I get to earn money as well as learn at the same time. And then in the future, I could maybe go to, like, college for, like, a year and, like, make my skills even better. So I feel like it's just—I think it's better for me, honestly.
1: And have you— is there a particular sort of career track that you're interested in within the restaurant industry?
2: I think it's too early to tell. I think it could go different ways. I think I could probably, I do want to be a chef and maybe own my own restaurant someday. But I also want to, like, have that experience and open, like, with someone else or be, like, um, like a line cook and stuff for a few more years.
1: Yeah. And have you thought about where you would like to go next?
2: Um. Not really. i like I'm here like I like to learn here and I wanna like stay here for a few more like years at least just to like further my skills more. We'll
0: keep her as long as we can. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well Elizabeth, let me ask about what's next for you. I understand that Chook is about to open a fourth location. I imagine your hands are gonna be pretty full with that for the, the near future.
0: Yeah, so we're opening up our, our fourth location in Greenwood Village. Um it's coming along. We are just working on hiring an opening team for out there. Um, And then we just really wanna focus on the four stores that we have. Um, The great thing about having multiple stores is being able to create more opportunities and and growth for folks. So um, the more stores we open, that just means the more leaders we get to build. Um, And we certainly have our eyes to to continue to expand, Um, but with the past three years being as tumultuous as they have, um, I think we are looking to just kind of get our wings underneath us, you know, three years old, it's a lot to open three stores in that time period. So um, just working on making us the best chicken stores that we can and the just shops that we have.
1: And because we heard so much about the disruptions in the restaurant industry that the pandemic caused. I'm wondering if the pandemic and this whole experience of going through it has caused you and your business to rethink or maybe reimagine what a career in the restaurant industry can and should look like.
0: I definitely think it has. Um, I think that in a lot of ways, it's actually made restaurants um, take on some benefits for their employees that they hadn't previously um, to make themselves more attractive. So we've always been a tip pooled one house mentality here at Chook. and I think it's um, something that a lot of restaurants have taken on since the pandemic to create a little bit more pay equity. Um, which I think is, is great across the board to have the dishwashers and the line cooks make as much as the servers and the bartenders. Um, so that's been really healthy. I also think, like, looking at the benefits that our employers are getting from healthcare to um, an EAP to mental health support, all of those pieces that typically you wouldn't get in a restaurant job. Um, but given it's, you know, it's a very viable career option and also can be very demanding. Super helpful um, for us to just continue to push what it, what a good business provides for their employees.
1: That was Elizabeth Nicholson, Chief Operating Officer for Chook Charcoal Chicken, and Daniela Fernandez, an apprentice through the RYRA program, working at Chook's 8th and Birch Street location in Denver. Thank you both so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
1: That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll speak with content creator Nelson Holland, who makes videos about Colorado nature, travel, and healthy living on TikTok for tens of thousands of followers around the world as Fat Black and Gettin' It. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.